This allowed me to be taken seriously once I launched Feed Hive. After six months or so, I was around 30,000 followers on Twitter, which made the whole thing with talking about Feed Hive as the very first thing I ever did in terms of asking for people's money. It really made the difference in me being taken so much more seriously. Hey, bootstrappers, welcome to Bootstrap Stories, the podcast where founders, marketers, and thoughtful leaders share the most actionable tips on building a successful business. After meeting with hundreds of bootstrappers in the past years, I figured out that we all struggle to grow our businesses. But the truth is that most of us don't know where to ask for help or advice. That's why I decided to start this podcast, to give you all the keys to succeed at every stage of your business, all the tested strategies for solving your struggles and taking your business to a new level. No fluff, no bullshit, only a real talk between friends that help each other succeed. Today, my guest for this episode is Simon Hoiberg, CEO and founder at FeedHive. Simon, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm super excited to like uh, get to know like uh, your story a bit better and, uh, you know, like talk also about like your YouTube channel, because I think there is an interesting story there as well. So can you maybe give us a bit of background on what is FeedHive? When did you start and uh, how big you are right now? Absolutely. Um, so FeedHive is, is a social media marketing platform um, that basically helps users create and scale their social media presence. And uh, there's a high focus on workflow and productivity, and we're using AI and a lot of other cutting-edge technology in, in areas to improve the impact of delivery. And we are currently around 200,000 um, AR right now. Nice. That's cool. And when did you start it? It was founded a little more than a year ago, so very late 2020. Okay, and how many people are in the team? We are a team of five right now, um, contractors. So we actually okay. don't have any uh, <laughs> any employees. And that's cool. And uh, how did you come up with uh, with the idea? Like, what made you start the business? Well. It's actually, um, yeah, so to, to, to go back uh, a few years back, I had just wrapped up another attempt at building a SaaS, which uh, failed horribly. I made this very classical mistake of building everything in secret, thinking that there was actually a need. And as it turned out, no one really had the problem I was trying to solve. And I remember that the worst, the worst feeling from that experience was this feeling of yelling out into the void and having everything completely drowned. So I posted the launch on Reddit and Twitter Twitter and Indie Hackers, and it was just completely drowning with like between a lot of other people posting their products. And I remember I was one night reading a uh, chapter from the book Rework, uh, this, this book by the guys over at Basecamp. And one of the things they emphasized was the, the importance of building an audience and how important it was to have people's trust and attention when trying to roll out uh, something new. So after that experience, I thought, this is it. I'm, I'm going to be building an audience and the next SaaS I'll be launching is, it, it might still fail, no one knows, but it's certainly not going to be from not being heard. I was very determined about that. And so I started posting on Twitter. I was already active on LinkedIn at the, at the time and I added Instagram to the mix and it quite quickly came, came clear to me that I needed some sort of tool to scale this properly. And at this point, I tried out uh, Hootsuite, which is 
the biggest social media management tool uh, there is at the market right now. And I absolutely hated it. I, I tried <laughs> Buffer and I absolutely hated it. And actually, I tried a bunch of these big tools and I thought they were all really huge, monolithic, big and clunky and super slow tools. And so I tried with a bunch of other smaller tools that was built by other startups at the time, and they seemed much more decent, but they were very, they were very specialized at Twitter. And not and I was looking for something that I could use to, to manage all my social accounts. And at this point, I was like, where's the tool that I need? That like <laughs> the one that can both do new things like Twitter threats and do conditional posting. But that also has first-class support for both LinkedIn and Instagram and where the software itself is actually fast and responsive and, and kind of like meets the standard of, of a web application today. And I, 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 was, I was imagining being an agency, having to sit and work in a tool like that all day long where you kind of you need to click 79 times to get something <laughs> done and where the, the whole page needs to refresh every single time you click something. And so this is this is the point where I thought to myself, like, is this really it? Is 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 there seriously uh, still a, a a need in the market in this super crowded market as as it is? And this is where I started paying more attention to discussions on Twitter and LinkedIn, and it, and it actually did turn out that there were other users with the exact same issue as as I had at the time. So a little bit further down the road, I collected a small group of twenty five people on Twitter. And they were also active on platforms like uh, like LinkedIn and Instagram. And, and I actually started building an, an MVP just for these 25 people. And we I invited them to, to, to start using the platform already after two weeks of building. And then we had a, we had a group, a close group. And I really, uh, we, we built the entirety of feed hypes like Backbone together, more or less. And everything in these next few months was kind of like something we discussed just in this small group, like how we had daily discussions about features and what would work the best and how should it be. And after these two months, I launched the thing in a public beta and it did actually get quite a good amount of traction on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And already after a few weeks, we had the first thousand something MRR. Nice. And that was kind of the cue for me that, okay, that there's actually <laughs> something here still. So that's where my focus has been. Yeah. And I, I've got a question because I think like uh, in our audience, we have people who are just getting started up to like people making hundreds of millions in AR. But for the one, you know, who are getting started, I think like there is something super interesting in what you say, you know, it's like first is doesn't matter if the market is crowded, if you can do better and you feel like there is a need, go for it and test it. I think the fact that you are doing it uh, and I think it's uh, it's very like uh, like you did a master plan. It's like act quickly and test it and get feedback very quickly, like to improve your product. So I think you did it like in the, in the best way possible, especially with the audience you had built. And the second thing, which is more like a question I have to you is, uh, okay, you mentioned you have 25 users. So you took them from your audience, a private beta, private group. Uh, in a practical sense, do you ask these people uh, to pay for the product? Or is it free at the beginning? And second question is like, where did you gather feedback? Was it a Slack? Was it a WhatsApp group? Yeah. So um, as as with the feedback, that was actually a Twitter group. So okay. simply <laughs> just on Twitter, you can do a group chat, and that was really where we where we communicated. Since we were only twenty five people, it was manageable to do in in a Twitter group like. But it could have been it could have been just as well a WhatsApp group or a Slack server or something like that. And yes. 
in order to get these 25 users on board, I actually did offer them all a lifetime of free unlimited usage on FeedHive. Nice. And so there's a, a bit of a leap of faith here because clearly giving something for free does not necessarily resemble if <laughs> a, a a similar type of user would actually then be able to pay for it. There are certain biases. You can ask these users, would you have paid for it? And they would have gone, yes, of course I would. So there is definitely a certain leap of faith. I used my audience on Twitter at the time, having around 30,000 followers to post screenshots often and post status updates on the progress and then building in public, as they call it, to constantly make sure that there was actually some interest also from outside users. And in this time, I actually had users uh, write to me and say openly that if I can get, I want to get in earlier, I really need this tool. I'll be willing to pay for it if I can get in early also before a public beta launch that, that I had announced. And that was kind of a validation as well. Nice. And uh, I, I think this is really like interesting because you know, like uh, to me, even though a lot of people are saying like, yeah, you should sell before you build, you should like, and I do feel like right now, um, it's actually like more complex because there are so many SaaS out there that, you know, charging people on something that they haven't seen or whatever. It's kind of like the, the, the mirage, like people are like perceiving and the way you did it, I think is actually like the a really smart way to build like a loyal audience, make them really involved in the growth of the product. And once you come like to that beta and, uh, you know, like you launch it, you get like a good traction, uh, you get to that like 1K in MRR. What do you think? Like, because the, the launch is always something, you know, where it's exciting, you usually plan it, etc., And then you always have this kind of like, okay, the launch has passed. What do I do now? You know? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I definitely agree. I, I, I think a combination works well because I'm actually very, uh, very for charging people before they have the product as, as a, like the ultimate validation. Yeah. But what happens often I've seen is that people tend to completely overpromise on what they're going to build. So they build a landing page and you will have all kinds of insane features. And that's really what people end up paying for because they, get FOMO and it looks amazing and they're not ever going to build even like 10% of all that. They they probably even haven't covered if it's possible or if it's feasible to do so. <laughs> and so like if you're charging users upfront, be, be sure that there is a certain, like that it's also realistic what you're charging for and what we can build. Like having, building with 25 people on the side of doing this and having them watching how they didn't lose interest over the course of two months and they didn't kind of bail out and stop replying in the group and so on. That was like a secondary validation that kind of backed that I could actually pull it off. Nice. And I'm also curious like to dig in a bit more, you know, in like uh, the audience parts, because for you, it was obvious that this is the first thing that you're going to do. So going back to 2020, when you started, how big was your uh, audience on Twitter at the time? Um, at the time, I, at the time I started doing FeedHive, my audience was around thirty thousand followers. But to to back down even a little bit before that, as I mentioned, at, when when I was when I was done doing my very first attempt at building a SaaS, um, I had no followers at all, and I was at this point very determined that I needed to build an audience fast <laughs> so that I could do this whole thing again and and try. In a, in a different way. And in in the beginning, it also really didn't go well. Um, 
I was impatient and I was kind of in a hurry and I had this very sharp focus on what what that that I needed an audience so that I could get something out of it. And it, this there is this sense of immediate self-promotion in mostly every piece of content I shared. There is this follow me now and also follow me on this <laughs> other platform and subscribe to my newsletter. And um, I even kept actually promoting my failed SaaS back then in a desperate <laughs> attempt of still getting users onto that platform. And it just didn't like my, my agenda just shined through where too clearly. And I was... I was actually getting quite frustrated with with the whole audience building thing, but there was a point where I I chose to completely change my strategy, um, and and decided to stop doing it the way that I have done, and then I wanted to try to do two months of just sharing value without asking for anything uh, in return, and I was very determined on trying this two months just putting the best stuff I got out there and not asking for anything and just see what happened. Like no asking people to follow me and no asking them to sign up anywhere. And I was also ready to, to kind of like dump this whole thing if it didn't work. So in these two months, I had a goal that was like, I needed to get to a thousand Twitter followers in two months of doing this. And this is really where things started to take off because in fact, after doing this, I, after six weeks, I had more than 10,000 followers on Twitter. So nice. this kind of pattern really seemed to work out, which is also where it got super clear to me that on social media today, we got so used to consume content that is there to provide value, but it's actually kind of a secret sales funnel in disguise. So I think these, as, as these kind of sales funnels got quite creative, a lot of users are kind of anticipating it a little bit. Every time they see something valuable, they're expecting like that 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 attempt of converting them just around the corner so for me pushing out content for a long long time i actually did this for six months without asking for anything in return this allowed me to be taken seriously once i launched feed hype and after six months or so i was around 30 30 followers on twitter which made the whole thing with talking about feed hype as the very first thing I ever did in terms of asking for people's money. Uh, it really made the difference in me being taken so much more seriously. No, that's that's super interesting. And uh, I, I want to dig in again, like uh, a little bit like deeper, you know, in all these things where you said, and I agree with you, actually, it's like uh, most of the time when you see a valuable thread on Twitter, you, you are like ready to see at the end, like, Hey, this is my newsletter, by the way, <laughs> where I sell a course about XYZ or something like this. Um, so wh whenever you said like, okay, I, I was solely focused on Twitter and on audience building, was it basically like you, um, writing tons of tweets or threads just to provide like a lot of value or were you also like engaging a lot with other people's tweet and, you know, like spending and, and also like second question, like how much hours were you spending each day basically? Um, if, yeah, but both good, uh, two good questions. Um, the first one, yes, it was a, it was a good mix of both engaging with other people on, on their accounts, um, especially trying to add value on, by the time people that were way, way, way bigger and had a much larger following that I had. Um, I think that's, that's a great opportunity to actually, um, get some traction on your own account. But it's important again, that you don't do this in any kind of self-promotive way. So don't go in 
big accounts and just add a shameless plug as a comment. <laughs> uh, it, it won't really work. But if you can truly add value to their post without kind of stealing their thunder or trying to steal their traffic, not only will it be appreciated, these big accounts, they will start noticing. They might even at some point start retreating your stuff because they think you're cool. You're engaging with their content and helping. But also a lot of people tend to upvote it or like it. So it actually kind of get hoisted to, to the top of that comment section. Most social media platforms does this. And this is actually an excellent way to direct traffic. Way better than trying to hack engagement by asking people to follow left and right or put like a thousand hashtags and hope that you end up in some some place where people will see. Uh, engaging is good. I'm, I'm very much... Um, very much for for that part. Uh, to answer your other question, I think I spent at, at this time, um, I think I spent around eight to 10 hours a week probably writing content, but I was very much scheduling ahead already from the beginning, also okay. before I started doing feed hive. So, so putting aside a good Sunday to just sit and come up with content allowed me to still have some time during the week to engage and to do other things. Okay. And how much time would you spend engaging? Like, would you, if, is it like one hour per day or something like that? Or probably yeah, 30 minutes, one hour a day, probably. I, I think on, on a weekly basis, it was probably a 50, 50 split. Nice. Um, it's, it's not anymore. I engage less today. I, that's, that's admitted. I'm also having, um, a, a bigger audience now on, on multiple platforms so that it becomes hard to, to keep up. But back then, yeah, it was probably like a 50, 50 split. Nice. And uh, how big right now is uh, is uh, is your audience on Twitter? Um, I have uh, just around hundred thousand followers on Twitter, and around twenty five on Instagram, thirty thousand on LinkedIn, and just around twelve thousand on YouTube. Nice. Oh, and talking about YouTube, like, cause we are in your studio right now. Yes, we are. <laughs> Which is cool. Like, uh, what, uh, why did you start it? Like the, the channel, when did you start it? And, uh, yeah, what, uh, like I've, I've read that you made some money out of it. So I'll ask a question afterwards, but let's get to it from the start. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, when back when, when I was starting to do, um, content, I was actually quite, um, I already kind of made up my mind that I did not want to do YouTube. Um, <laughs> uh, it, I thought it was too time consuming. I didn't know a lot about editing and there was, it, it was, it was, there was too much to learn. I felt while also trying to build a SaaS and, and keep up an audience on other channels. But I started doing these, um, these small videos on Twitter. It was these like uh, quick two minute videos of me explaining something. It could be about JavaScript or how to get freelance clients. And this was, this was uh, slightly before the whole shorts and reels thing like really exploded. And, um, you didn't see a lot of these short videos and especially not on Twitter. So my, um, my brand kind of got known a little bit for these small videos. People really liked them. And, and in the course of like, I think the next six months or so, people kept asking me to please create a YouTube channel. And I was kind of a little bit um, stubborn about really not wanting to get into that. And at some point I, I thought like, yeah, I, could, I can create a channel and just put these short videos there so they don't drown on Twitter. Then people can find them more easily. And more or less overnight, I had the first thousand subscribers or so. And I was starting to read about some of all the benefits you actually get from a channel audience. And I got more and more into the idea of actually running a YouTube channel professionally alongside my SaaS. And it didn't, when I started doing videos more deliberate and more, more intentional, 
um, for YouTube, it didn't take long before I found out that I absolutely loved it. It, it is <laughs> very fun. And I have, I think for me, it's, it's, it's really uh, added a great outlet for the more creative side of me. Personally, while running a SaaS is a little bit more um, management and systems and, and programming and these kinds of things, uh, YouTube videos has a, a creative component to it that I, I really, really enjoy. And it, uh, yeah, it also added the factor that for me, having multiple things to work on at the same time is actually what prevents me from burning out personally. It might, it might sound counterintuitive, but if, if I were to constantly focus on one thing like feed hive, it would be I, it, like, I would really feel that it would be exhausting. It would be like flexing the same muscle constantly without a break and just having to switch between these two things that I actually take. I take YouTube almost as seriously as a business as I do my SaaS and having these two things to switch between now, it really added a lot of like diversity in what I do on a daily basis. And it actually prevents me from burning out. I 100% agree with that. I think like if you, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Having multiple projects for me, it's, and when you say it's counterintuitive, like it's, it's true because people don't understand it. It's like for them, it's like, if you feel like you're working too hard on something, they would say like, just rest. But for me, like working on something else is actually rest. You know, it's like, it's just, I'm doing something agree. else. Like my yeah. brain is, is not, yeah, it's not the Absolutely. same muscle. And it's like that thing yeah. where you, you you sit down and try to relax and you tell yourself you need to take a break, but in that break, you do nothing but think <laughs> about that thing that you yeah. still haven't solved. It doesn't really work while switching to something else. Absolutely agree that it, it really does relax you even more, I think. Yeah, it's 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 actually like, uh, yeah, what you said is is definitely true. Like if you compare it to just sitting and just thinking about like the same problem and for people who don't know like about your your channel, like can you give us give us a bit more like uh, would you, who are you targeting on your channel? Like how much video have you posted? What's uh, kind of like your strategy? Yeah, um, so I um, the, the, the topic of my channel is online business. So I talk obviously a lot about SaaS and building a SaaS business, but I actually also cover uh, things like I'm, I'm selling eBooks as well. So I cover how to, to, to launch and sell info products. And I'm, I'm experimenting with other types of online business um, strategies. Like I've tried a bit of doing drop shipping and I'm covering different approaches and different ideas you as, as especially as a technical person, as a programmer can, can approach to try to start with your own business. And I have, I think I have posted around 60 videos at this point uh yeah so do you do like uh do you have like some sort of calendar where you're like okay each week i'm posting a video or is it like more i'm posting I, when i have like really good content i have a i have a calendar um and this is also um i started with this in 2022 so it's actually recently i aligned this up but this has to do with the fact that there there has been an increasing interest in from sponsors in sponsoring some of my videos and this has um, made me schedule things and and kind of trying to to publish things on a schedule. So I do one big video every other week, and then I do two shorts in the the week that I don't post a, a big video. And while this is uh, it's it's less than than a lot of other upcoming YouTubers would would do, and what some other professional YouTubers would advise you to, but. Um, that's how it works for me. I, I like to add a good amount of quality in the videos that I do post. And I do at this point, everything myself from scripting, filming, editing, and, uh, in a busy day of also running a startup, this is, 
this is what what I what what I can do. <laughs> yeah, that's no, no, that's really impressive, and that's that's awesome. And you know, I was, uh, I think I read somewhere, I'm not sure if it was in your tweet or an article, like uh, that you were making about like 4K per month on YouTube. Is that that's correct? correct? Yes. And the money comes from mainly like sponsors. Or? Mainly sponsors, uh, okay. well around 70% sponsors. And then I have the, the remaining 15% is ad revenue. And okay. then I have ebook sales, which I talk about my ebook sales in some of my videos and I put a link and the remaining 15% is that the sales I can track back to these videos. And I think this is like, uh, like so interesting because I think your channel on YouTube, it's, uh, I think I was checking it earlier. It's about like uh, 12K, right? Followers. Yeah. 12.6. Yes. So yes. 13K. And uh, you're making around like 4K per month, which uh, which I think is like the dream for a lot of you know people and content creators. I think so. Uh, do you feel like um, the fact that you really like niched your uh, your like uh, YouTube channel was key? Because obviously, when I'm on it, it's like online business tech and SaaS startup, which is like pretty well segmented, I would say. Yes, I I, I think so. Uh, yes, I also think that. Um, to the average YouTuber, I wouldn't sit here and tell everyone that when you reach 13,000 subscribers, you can make 4,000 a month because that's probably like statistically probably not going to be true. Um, so it very much has to um, to do with multiple factors. Um, with ad revenue, I'm, I'm making around $500 a month on ads, but nice. that's also significantly higher than the average person with my view count and my subscriber count. But that simply has to do with the, the, the topic I picked. So YouTube doesn't um, pay the same amount of money for people's ads. They pick based on demand. So there are certain topics and certain keywords there that's in higher demand. So advertisers are willing to bid higher in an auction to have ads shown on these types of videos compared to other types of videos. And that's where if, you, if you're going to do a programming channel or gaming channel, you're not going to reach as high ad revenue as if you do online business, e-commerce, personal investment, these kinds of topics. They're yeah. the, among the highest in, in terms of ad revenue. Yeah. And in terms of sponsorships, I'm also charging my sponsors a fair amount of money for sponsoring a video. And it is very much with this implicit promise that I am taking this very seriously and that I am I am very determined on reaching hundred thousand subscribers this year and right now it's a very good investment because when i reach that point it will be mm. significantly more pricey to sponsor one of my videos and this is evergreen content so a video that they put now it will keep delivering for maybe even years to come so it will be a very good investment to actually put money into my channel now and this is kind of my selling proposition when i talk to sponsors so i am charging more than the typical youtuber my size does for sponsoring a video for sure no, but that's, I think you have like the, the best, uh, sales pitch for that. It's, <laughs> you know, it make it makes sense. You know, it's like, uh, invest now, uh, look at me on the other, like, and, and you have also like, I would say the, the social proof to back it up, you know, like you can just say, okay, look at my Instagram, look at my like Twitter account, look at like my LinkedIn. It's not as if you were like just a random dude who started on tweet on uh, YouTube and sure. charging a lot of money. So, so the, the end goal for this year is uh, 100K uh, followers. So what, what's kind of like the, the strategy? Do you do like uh, SEO content? Do you try to find like your own and unique format? Do you just, because um, whenever you know you're growing an audience on a, on a social network, 
mean, one strategy is to look at people who are succeeding and try to kind of like do the same, but your own way. So what, how do you approach like the, the strategy on YouTube? It's, it's, it's a great question. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I notice now that I'm starting to rank high on a bunch of my videos when you search for SaaS, especially mm -hmm. when on YouTube, if you search for SaaS tech, tech stack, I have a few videos that <laughs> comes up as the first ones. But what, from what I can see already at this point, I don't really get that much traffic from search. And I am very much aiming for content that is engaging and is going to catch your attention on what what in what in YouTube terms they call the browse features, which is basically the homepage. This is where I get by far the most of my traffic. Uh, so people see my thumbnails and my videos in this grid of, of a lot of videos and they click there and they stay long enough that YouTube's algorithm determines that this content is good enough to start putting on new people's homepages. And, and this is the way I get subscribers. So my strategy is more focused around making something that people will catch on the homepage rather than search for it. Nice. And uh, how much time do you invest? Because if your goal is to kind of like almost 10x, a bit less, maybe 9x, Uh, what's uh, what's the the amount of hours you're willing to spend each uh, each week? That's a good question. I actually haven't uh, I actually haven't done the math, uh, but but I spend a fair amount of time on it. Okay. Uh, not a, not not full time, but uh, weekends. But, <laughs> okay. Hey, I probably also more than weekends. I I probably spend a few hours planning, scripting, writing, and okay. stuff like that per, per day on, okay. on YouTube at this point. Yeah. And each video you you put out is scripted. In yes. Okay. And you do it with like a prompter or it's more like a script in general. And then you just, uh, I do a script and then I have a teleprompter. I have, I'm looking at it right now. So you can't <laughs> actually see that it's up in front of me. Nice. Um, and this is where, and I actually, this is very different from different YouTubers, how they, they find the flow better. I am non-native English speaking. So yeah. I quickly, um, get into a kind of ramble if I just freestyle it. So I script <laughs> my content this and I me. read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. And and um, I I I actually read up word by word. Ninety five percent of it I do improvise a little bit, but ninety five percent of it is is just me reading up from a script while I yeah. sit there. Yes. And I feel like I mean, to me, it's like whenever you're scripting, if you are the one writing the scripts, it's still you. So it feels natural. Like it's uh, it's not as if you took like a fancy word and you put it out like uh, out there and just reading someone else's text. So. I think so. I think so. Uh, 100% agree. I also, I put a, a lot of effort into making these small uh, annotations in the script. So I, I add like a, make a small pause here and emphasize this word. And I have this little system where, where when I read it on the prompter, I kind of know, or, or, or I'm, I'm reminded how I'm supposed to deliver it in a way that, that doesn't feel too like reading up. Yeah, I no, I I understand. I think it's I think it's actually like uh, really smart to do it. And I I know a lot of people like uh, when they get started with audience building, something that they that they you know like ask uh, a lot is how do you find like your content ideas? So for you, like, do you get inspiration from other YouTubers? Do you get inspiration from Twitter? Um, do you like uh, how do you choose the format? Is it like something you've seen you like and you try to adapt it? Like, what's kind of like the the strategy and thought process around the, the creation phase? Um, I, I'm a big fan of, um, of copying what I can see works well on other channels. So it's a, it's a good, um, it's a good mix of multiple things. 
um, I look at similar chan- channels that has a similar audience and try to see which kind of themes and topics does well. And now I have an audience on both YouTube and obviously on Twitter that's big enough that I can also listen to demand. So people asking me if I see a question being asked over and over, I see that this is a good um, this is a good occasion to actually cover something that people keep asking. But I do have um, I'm a big fan of incorporating storytelling into my videos. It it is something that has increased the retention rate for for my videos. Uh, tremendously since since I started putting more focus into that. So I also have this kind of checklist of things that a topic or a theme needs to pass in order for me to be able to make a good video out of it. One of them is, can I can I fabric or tell a good story about it? Because if I just have to sit and answer a question and kind of deliver, then it's not going to be a very good video. I need to be able to make something exciting out of it before I can I can post. And based on, uh, you know, your experience so far, what have you seen has like the highest impact? Because on YouTube, you know, I've seen like uh, a lot of people uh, talking about the thumbnails, talking about the titles, talking about like changing 20 times the thumbnails to get like more traction eventually. Like what's like your mindset and approach when it comes to thumbnails? Do you create them in advance prior to recording or how do you like think through all of this? Yes, I actually do. Um, I actually do because I do I do think that the thumbnails and title are, especially in the way I'm trying to target traffic from the homepage, are extremely important to have them nailed down well. So my my kind of my my process for doing this is kind of like I go through the idea, and then I'm thinking, is there something to this that I can create something exciting about? Then I go on to create title and thumbnail. And again, like I see this as a kind of step that I need to pass in order to improve. If I cannot, if I cannot make an exciting title out of it or make a thumbnail that very clearly um, gives the right associations, then probably the idea is too vague or it's just not really gonna <laughs> catch the audience properly. And I found that this way of doing it, I actually end up making both title and thumbnails and sitting there and being stuck with it. And I ask a few people in my, my network, what do you think? And if people go like, oh, it's just not, I know I wouldn't click it. Then I, I, I discard it. And I'm, I'm not afraid of doing that and just say like, okay, but then I can't make a good idea out of this because I, I do want it to work before I start putting in the, the big effort of actually filming and editing. So just to, just to, I understand like everything. So it's like, you have the idea of a content Um, you're going to try to think about the title and the thumbnail. And if you can't find it, you just don't write the script and don't do like the editing. Or do you actually like write the script, then try to find out like a a title and a thumbnail. And if you can't, then you stop. No, I I do with the thumbnail and title first before scripting. And if I can't, if I can't make that work, if either I just struggle with getting the, the right thumbnail and the right title in place for this idea, um, I, I don't go on from there. And I have this, like, I, I I typically paste it into the grid. I take a screenshot of the grid on YouTube, on the homepage. Then I put my title and thumbnail in there. And then I have, um, I, I use this test on my own thumbnails and titles um, that I think is, is really good. I saw this <laughs> from someone else that um, you should kind of create it. Then when you look up one second and then you look away. This is how much time you have to catch people's attention. Mm. If you're not able to create the right association in that one second, then it's then it's not going to work in a huge grid with a bunch of videos on the homepage. 
So I do that and then I screenshot it and then I send it to some people so they can see it along with a bunch of other <laughs> videos on YouTube and then ask them like, would you click this? Is it good enough? And I have, I mean, in some closed networks of people, they're very brutally honest with me and, and <laughs> let me know that no, it's just not, no. And then, and and from there, no, I don't go on to write the script and I certainly don't go on to film and edit because then I just know that, that there's like too many indicators that this video will flop. That's that's really, really interesting. I, I love the process and I think it's really insightful. And do you feel like... Um, writing on Twitter was actually helpful for you like to find, you know, like this, because the, the thumbnails and also like the, the title are two things where you need to be catchy, intriguing, and, you know, like hooked the person. Uh, and Twitter, you are limited in characters whenever you want to write. So do you feel like both are kind of like complementary and it was helpful for you to do those, those two things at the same time? I would say so. Um, it's not something that, that I ever thought a okay. whole lot about, but yes, I would say so. I actually do think that the, the idea and that, that on Twitter, you have a limited amount of characters does help you um, take an idea and making it as concise as you possibly can. And uh, yeah, in terms of, of, of writing titles, it's, it's actually more challenging than you would think coming up with a good title, a good short title. It's, I think it's the hardest, you know, like uh, people, like even like at Ogilvy or this type of thing, like they were spending like days and days because a title is like a tagline, you know, like down the line, yeah. you, you, yeah, if you want it to be impactful, you need to spend time. Absolutely. And, uh, and you mentioned that you have like uh, around like 25K, I think on Instagram. So I'm curious, like what type of uh, content do you post? What was like your growth strategy? Um, how did you get started? Well, on Instagram, it's very different. I post almost only um, programming content there. And okay. I have Instagram and a little bit Facebook is is very purposefully for my the part of my audience that is mostly interested in software development. And that's because I sell two eBooks that is about software development. And I do like 98% of all my revenue come from running Facebook ads. And these wow. ads are mostly seen on Instagram. And this works super well, um, especially having an audience on Instagram really, really serves well as a social proof um, because believe it or not, they will like your ad. <laughs> they, will, they will hit the like button and it will show. And when people see an ad, one of the first thing people do is obviously to go in, they click on your profile to see who's this dude that's selling this JavaScript book. And they will now see, okay, there's like a lot of followers. He's very engaging. Like a lot of people like his stuff. He's helpful in the comments and like uh, explaining things. So this makes the ads work much better. And when you get this sort of engagement, Facebook actually uh, gives you a tiny reward. So you get slightly cheaper ads and you're also you're also able to dominate in an auction if your content is actually <laughs> engaging and good for the platform. So my Instagram following serves this particular purpose, of course, creating value for my followers, but it is really working well with selling my uh, my info products through these platforms. It does not work very well for me on Twitter. For some reason, the whole, I do it, and I ever have a viral <laughs> tweet, I do plug it and be like, mm. but I don't really, I see some other people really killing it with that method. It's not something that works particularly well for me. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering, like, uh, on Instagram, to get to that 25K, was it mainly driven through ads or did you have, like, a 
a proper strategy in place from day one that you are continuing where you post content daily, do yes. stories, do all these type of things? Yes, stories, post content. Um, again, it actually does help on Instagram as well, engaging with other users. But a thing, I didn't run ads in the beginning because they were ineffective. Okay. Because there's just, people see a lot of ads every day on these platforms. So the social proof really matters a lot. Having mm -hmm. these ads with no engagement on, they're ineffective and they get expensive. But what I actually did in the beginning was that I found big profiles that was open for promotion. And then I paid them to share my content and give them a, give me a mention. And this is a strategy that works better on Instagram that I have seen anywhere else. So if I, if I understand correctly, you're going to find like influencers were, for example, talking about developers or like your niche. Yes. And then you ask them like to plug one of your content or the mention. Or yes, there are there are channels on Instagram that does nothing but share other people's content. So there's, okay. for instance, one for JavaScript, and they post very rarely their own content. So they actually go through Instagram and collect all the best of the best, and they put that into there. And people love to follow these Instagram profiles. It's kind of like a curated mm. uh, con like content on one profile. And of course, these these accounts they're very um, they're very polite about um, mentioning you in these comments when they share. So they don't steal people's stuff. They, they repost it and give you the right mentions. But you can also occasionally pay them if you're still small and they haven't found, they, they're, they're not willingly sharing your content for free yet. Then you can pay them <laughs> to do so and you can direct a, an enormous amount of um, followers like that. So and it's, you, a, it's an interesting strategy that I have only found working well on Instagram. I tried actually writing to a bunch of YouTubers that are a bit bigger than I am now, asking them if they're up for a paid channel shout out, but nope, <laughs> nope, no one's, no one's in on that. It's just like, yeah. yeah and, and what's, uh, can you give us maybe like a bit of numbers for people to realize? So it's like, would you pay them, I don't know, like a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks and how many like followers not, or? Not anything oh. close to that. Uh, oh, okay. I had a, uh, a big Instagram account with at the time around 800,000 followers oh, and yeah, I okay. paid around $150 for a post that was going to be there. And then a, um, a um, story was also included, which is going to be there for 24 hours. And then he would have my name in his in his bio for really? 24 hours, wow. uh, $150 all included. And the <laughs> amount of, if you have good content, the amount yeah. of followers you get from that is actually, uh, it is, you can beat the price of most ad platforms. If you, if you have followers as an objective, it is at least on Twitter. So that, that would be like, uh, how much, uh, how much followers would you got from there? Um, I can't remember exactly what, but I, I, I remember I, I calculated it down to around 10 cents per follower Okay, I yeah. got from some of these promotions. So you, a okay. lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's really interesting. And I actually have seen like, um, you know, people's strategy on social media, um, down the line, you know, like people were criticizing a lot, uh, people trying to just grow their audience at all costs or buying followers or doing all these things. But then I saw a guy who said something that was, I don't remember his name, but it was quite interesting saying that in the end, your audience is like your best investment. So instead of like trying to kind of like push ads or content or whatever, like what you could do is just push people to follow you. And then down the line, they are going to be on the funnel because you're going to put like a lot of stories, a lot of things. And down the line, your story is going to be about, hey guys, 
by the way, I've got like this helpful ebook or whatever. And then, you know, like they can become customers. 100%. So is it, is it sometime you, something you've also implemented in your ads where you're actually pushing potentially like your most performing content uh, organic and then push it with your ads just to drive more followers? Or whenever you do ads, you're more like, okay, I want like uh, to calculate my uh, ROAS, like uh, yeah. return on ad spend and just make sure that I'm making good money, the ROI is positive. And, uh, the, the last part, I actually okay. never boost, as they call it, any of okay. my organic content. I always separate it. And I do that for, for multiple reasons. Um, but one of them is being able to track my return on ad spend mm. uh, specifically. But we do have, I, I, I don't really, I actually have a, my, the ads that I'm running for my personal brand for my eBooks is just this like one ad. Fun. I have a tiny funnel and some retargeting, uh, but we're also getting most of our users on FeedHive from running ads. And here we have a much more sophisticated multi-step um, funnel set up on Facebook with uh, with a retargeting whole retargeting sequences of highlighting different features to people that have been on our website for so and so long. It, it gets much more uh, complex, and we never start selling anything on the very first ad we present the cold audience with. Whereas on my my eBooks, they're also so cheap. They're nineteen dollars <laughs> right now. Buy I'm doing it, it's like twenty nine hundred ninety dollars on a sale. So you can kind of like target cold audience, saying like here is people a little bit more willing to go in for an an, an impulse purchase. And if not, visit your website, and now I can retarget them with something else in the smaller. <laughs> yeah. No, and and that's cool. I I I think like uh, I want to jump back on what you said about like your your funnel and ad funnel with uh, with FeedHive. So. Can you walk us through a bit, like someone's on your website, spending a bit of time on it, like how much time and how did you retard them? Like what's kind of the, the classical funnel that you are doing? Well, we are, um, the, the classical funnel we're doing is we, um, I, I promote something, either blog post or some content on our site. So that could be best um, alternatives to later. We have an article about that or whenever something new comes out, like Canva just announced that they will have a scheduler in their app. So we, we wrote a blog post about, is it worth it to use Canva as a social media scheduler? Mm. Of course, we, <laughs> we mentioned FeedHive in these articles, but we post this kind of like relevant content at, to our cold audience. Then we start retargeting these people that visited the blog post with mm. more ads about social media and the benefits. And now we're moving them from in what you call in marketing terms, we're moving them from unaware to problem solution aware and then we even have another we even have another uh, sequence after that when people have been engaging with the retargeted audience we start talking about uh, discounted offers trials sign up for feed hive here and some of the more benefits that we have and we we do we do experiments with this constantly but in 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 with with such a super competitive space that we're working in that is social media schedulers you can't yeah. just promote an ad saying like, sign up for my product here. Mm. People are not going to do it. So you need to warm them up and make them feel a bit comfortable with your brand and your product and make them recognize certain patterns of text and graphics. And we have, I'm working with, uh, we have an in-house a graphic designer who's excellent as he's killing it with these kind of like recognizable brand uh, pieces of, of creatives. And then we have an agency doing uh, content for us so that's both targeted for SEOs who go on Google, but it's also really um, deliberately written in a way that works well on ads. 
and attract people to get on our website. But it's a much more complicated setup to direct users from cold to sign up for a product. And it gets more complicated, obviously, calculating the acquisition cost of a single <laughs> user, but it's exciting. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, I really love it and I love the way you explained it. And it makes like so much sense. You know, it's, uh, you know, you're, because getting interrupted all day long with ads or people want to kind of like force you to buy something down the line, like people are fed up. So if you can lead with value on a cold audience with a specific topic and right now I think like the algorithm, like know how, you know, with the content to find like the right people who are going to yeah. like it. Then the one that are very relevant, you retarget them with, uh, again, like additional content, but something you mentioned that I really loved. And I think it's, uh, it's super smart of you guys like to do that is keeping the same branding, like being highly recognizable, both on the design design side and also on the copy side, because, you know, as you said, like your brand is also like your tone, your voice and, uh, and making sure that everything is, uh, is recognizable. So whenever you do like additional touch then, and only then when you know that they are hot, okay, here's the sign up button Absolutely. and, and people will convert. Yes. No, that, that's super cool. And what are like, uh, kind of like the, the challenges for you in the, in the coming, co coming months or years, like, because you, you obviously have like feed hive, which is like growing and it's a SaaS, So it's like this different business model. And then you also have like your info products and the other things you do. So it's like, what, where do you feel like the, the most challenge? It, it's, it's obviously challenging making time for everything and managing, <laughs> uh, doing multiple things at once like this, where I, as, as, as I mentioned, I do get super motivated by having to shift, but right now in, as in like it, at this very moment, I'm actually at a, at a, at a place where I, I can feel both of these things, YouTube and FeedHive is starting to take off faster <laughs> and I need to recruit people to help me out with more things, which is no, we, we don't have all the proper structures for onboarding uh, new employees and new contractors yet. So that's still a very manual me going through everything with everyone. It's time consuming <laughs> and a challenge that is very upcoming for me right now, because this is where I'm going with YouTube as well, getting people on board with, to help with editing and so on, is actually managing, a, like creating a system for continuously onboarding people and scaling the teams that we're using. We're, um, we're operating from Switzerland and here in Switzerland, hiring as in permanently hire people is, is expensive. a mess. <laughs> it's expensive and it's like, I don't really see that I'm going to be doing that anytime soon. So we're still using contractors, which is great, but it is a little bit more, there's a higher kind of fluctuation. You typically don't have the same contractor for a year. They come in and help doing some stuff and then they're out. And making a process for actually handling this fluctuation of people coming in and out and, and making sure that everything is still covered, the more dependent you become on other people. That's a challenge that I'm dealing with at this very moment and I'm, that I'm actively trying to solve. This is, yeah, I think this is like the, the trickiest part. You're at like the, the most exciting, I would say, like stage because you're going to be able to delegate and everything. But again, like, I think it's, uh, Especially like when, when it comes to audience building and all these things that are time consuming, but you're potentially also like the, the best person to do it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you're the, the most qualified yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and that's how it will be. Right. And it's, so yeah. it's a trade off. It's hard. I think it was, uh, Julian Shapiro who said something like, uh, 
you know, you ha- you ha- whenever you want to delegate, you have to be okay with the fact that the person will only do like a 80 to 85% of yeah. the job you've been doing before and yeah. that you can coach them to become like five or 10% better. So in the end, it's like 90, 95%. And you can get out there yeah. at some point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it's about, it's about buying time. It's, it's not about yeah. getting people on board that are specialized in doing things that I couldn't do myself at this point, at least for it in a long extent. And I think mentally that does become challenging. I 100% agree because you, you were well aware that I could also sit down and do this myself and, and, and at this very moment, at least do a better result out of it, get a better result out of it. But then where's the time I'm going to spend on all the other things that needs to be done. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's, uh, that's really, really awesome. I want to kind of like wrap it up because I want to be cautious of, uh, of your time. And I usually ask like this, uh, three questions to other bootstrap entrepreneurs. Yeah. The first one is, uh, what is like a book or a podcast that you would recommend? I'm really happy about a podcast that's called built to sell radio. You can find it on, uh, on Spotify, uh, with a dude called, uh, John Warlow. It's great. It's about um, selling businesses and, and kind of building businesses with the intent of selling soon. It's, it's great. A lot of <laughs> nice. great insights on that one. Um, nice. A book, I think um, I wrote, uh, like I, I read one recently called Storyworthy uh, by a guy called uh, Matthew Dix. It's actually really, really great. And it's about storytelling and how to incorporate that into YouTube videos, ads, where nice. you need it. Uh, I, I'm going to check this out, yeah, <laughs> writing it down. It. <laughs> and uh, the, um, the second question is, uh, with the one bootstrap entrepreneurs that you are following or with like inspiring you? That would have to be, there's a German guy called Arvid Karl. Uh, He's yeah. excellent. You probably know him very well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he bootstrapped a company in only two years to a little under uh, a million dollar ARR and then he sold it. And he has since written some absolutely excellent books that are targeted to people who are bootstrapping companies. And then he's a great guy. I'm, I'm following him on Twitter. He shares a lot of really great content. So that would definitely be my favorite. Yeah, it's super nice. I was having a chat with him, I think like, uh, yeah, five, five or six days ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he's very, actually very active mm-hmm. in also replying and engaging and uh, having conversations with you on, on Twitter. On, on, yeah. on, I've had many discussions with him as well, like very great guy. Yeah, definitely. And uh, the last uh, question I ask um, is how do you regain energy when, uh, you know, like you are facing a downtime or like a tough time? I shift focus, playing down. I, I Whenever SaaS is kind of like tough, I remind myself that there's also a YouTube channel I need to grow. Maybe I should put an hour or two into that. When that gets annoying, I remind myself that I also need to think about my eBooks and then I go back. It, it's just like the best, as we talked about, like if you sit yeah. and give yourself a break, you don't really take a break mentally, but but actually shifting focus to me is the best way to keep motivating also when it gets hard. Awesome. Well, Simon, thanks a lot for sharing all these uh, tips. Pleasure. Where can people like uh, follow you or get in touch with you? Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Instagram. Uh, I'm Simon Hoiberg. So it's my name just with an O and that's my handle everywhere. Nice. So we'll we'll just put the links for everyone. That's perfect. <laughs> awesome, Simon. Have an awesome day. Have an awesome day. Thanks a Take lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Stories, the only podcast where bootstrap entrepreneurs share their journey in all transparency. If you enjoyed this episode, don't hesitate to leave us a review. And in case you want to see the interview, all episodes are live on the YouTube channel. Check out the link in the description and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Have an amazing day and make sure to also join us in our amazing Bootstrap community where we all helped each other to become successful and grow a profitable business. Take care and talk to you soon.